Hello and welcome to Inside Briefing, the podcast from the Institute for Government. I'm Hannah White. So it's the morning after the night before or the slightly later morning after the slightly earlier morning because a few hours ago the results of two huge by-elections landed and Labour won both, overturning massive Conservative majorities in Tamworth and Mid-Bedfordshire. So, how did Labour do it? What does Rishi Sunak do now? And what might this tell us about the battleground on which the general election might be fought? Talking of the general election, everyone is talking about when it might be held. Could it be next May, early autumn, late autumn, maybe as late as January 2025? The Institute for Government has been plotting the different paths to the election and gaming the scenarios, so we'll have a chat about that. Sticking with the voting theme, could a second referendum on Scottish independence be back on the cards? The SNP think they've come up with a route. So what is it? And could it work? We'll dial up our IFG colleague who headed up to the SNP conference in Aberdeen earlier this week. Joining me in the studio is an IFG duo, Alex Thomas and Kath Haddon. Hi, both. Hi, Hannah. Hi, Hannah. And I'm delighted to be joined again by Lucy Fisher, Whitehall editor at the Financial Times. Hi, Lucy. Hi, Hannah. Great to join you. I want to start by turning to the ongoing international crisis, which of course overshadows everything that's happening in Westminster. It's just over a week since Hamas launched its surprise attack. President Biden has now visited Israel, Rishi Sunak too. This is a regional conflict which is becoming an international crisis. Lucy, you were formerly a defence editor at the Times. What's the significance of these international uh, leaders visiting the region now? Well, uh, look, I think uh, obviously the main emphasis and priority for all the leaders joining is to avoid regional uh, escalation from this war uh, being between Israel and Hamas um, to to dragging in other players in the Middle East or even the wider West. Uh, And there is this sense that there's nothing Hamas would like more than this to end up uh, almost a, a global war between Jews in the West on one hand and Arabs on the other. So I'm not surprised that we've seen the likes of Joe Biden, Olaf Scholz, Ursula von der Leyen um, head out. Um, in one sense, Rishi Sunak obviously wasn't going to be um, left behind uh, in such a diplomatic flurry, um, especially when Emmanuel Macron is also um, en route to, to Israel. And of course, Britain you know, has hostages caught up in the horrific saga in Gaza and has a tradition in this region, has you know, played a great part in the history of uh, the creation of the State of Israel and, and what happened with Palestine in the first half of the 20th century. So I'm not surprised that Sunak wants to place himself front and centre. To me, his uh, goals for the talks he's conducting are are clear to express solidarity with Israel, um, to urge it to show restraint and abide by international law, to try and um, help negotiations to get the Rafa crossing open to allow aid to get into Gaza, and of course, to secure the release of uh, British nationals who are still held hostage there at the moment. And do you think there are potential repercussions for UK politics from what's going on in the Middle East? Well, look, I think there there are. At the moment, we've seen, interestingly to my mind, you know, uh, very close lines struck uh, by both the leadership of the Conservatives and the Labour Party. Um, there's hardly a cigarette paper between them making clear their foursquare behind Israel and its right to self-defence. As the humanitarian crisis in Gaza has worsened, we've seen both the Tory and Labour leaderships shift their emphasis slightly to make clear their sort of 
of sympathy with civilians in Gaza, the need um, for Israel and all sides and Hamas, of course, to try and protect civilian lives there. I think what's interesting is obviously the backlash from quarters of the Labour Party, the left um, influential Muslim members against Keir Starmer. They want to see him um, take a harder line against what they see as war crimes by Israel um, regarding the siege uh, of Gaza. I think, you know, we've seen this trickle of councillors quit, local party executive members quit in the past week or so. Uh, the Labour leadership at the moment is just trying to stop that mothballing, but it feels to me this really could become a much bigger problem for Starmer. Uh, and I think, you know, there is this sense it could play into the wider culture war in the UK. Um, tensions in local communities could worsen if this conflict drags on and becomes increasingly devastating for, for civilians in Palestine. So I think there, there will potentially be repercussions, yes. That's really interesting. And, and Alex, you're a, a former senior civil servant. What will have been going on inside government over the last couple of weeks as this crisis has unfolded? I suppose the first thing to say is not um, not to overstate the influence or agency that the UK uh, has in this. Uh, it does feel like we're all watching a script play out where we can predict what happens uh, next and there is limited influence that anyone, even the most powerful country in the world, the United States, has has over it. So I suppose in terms of what's going on in government, the first thing is to recognise that that reality, um, uh, and not to assume that there is, you know, there, there is there is power or agency where it, it doesn't exist. Um, more prosaically, there will have been meetings uh, or gatherings of the National Security Council or subcommittees to get the relevant interests involved. Uh, I think it's easy to overlook just how many different parts of the government machine might be involved in a response like this. Clearly, Number Ten and the Prime Minister, obviously the Foreign Office, Foreign and development office, aspects of the Ministry of Defence, but there are domestic elements uh, also, as, as Lucy says, so the Home Office in terms of um, uh, domestic security, um, the Department um, for Leveling Up and Communities because of the aspects of potential community tension that, that Lucy referred to. So um, there will be quite a quite a government operation uh, getting, getting into gear on all of this. Aspects of that will be the international security um, and, and that has dominated so far but I think over time it'll be those domestic aspects um, that come to the fore for, as, as tensions unfortunately probably rise um, for the reasons that Lucy says. And Kath I mean this is a conflict in which I mean more than I previously recall with previous conflicts this horror of what is going on has been playing out on social media and there's been a bit of a sort of battle there for, for the narrative. How hard is, is that for, I guess, the mainstream media, but also for, for politicians to follow and to, to respond to? Yeah, it's a it's a huge challenge. I mean, it has been playing out and obviously all involved are trying to get their point of view across. So whether you call that information or pro propaganda wars or or whether just you, people using social media to try and express their views. But yeah, we've seen it and particularly with the Al Ali hospital this week where the initial figures coming out and the claim by Hamas that this was an Israeli strike then led to you know great confusion obviously pushback from Israel who have said it definitely wasn't and now I mean it's all the intelligence agencies the UK are looking into it trying to get an objective assessment uh, the French came up with figures for the casualties last night that were wildly different from the original figures and that's very difficult for everyone else to follow when it is all playing out on social media 
a lot of news agencies are talking about the um, almost open source intelligence. So this is the kind of information that's out there uh, and intelligence agencies have been using for decades, but much more so since social media came to the fore. So there's a lot of, of news agencies that have had to build up that kind of expertise, uh, looking at being able to verify social media posts, being able to use satellite imagery to confirm locations, you know, timings of when stuff was produced. So it's a big challenge and that takes time. And obviously this is a conflict that is is rapidly moving through sequences, um, horrifically so. So it is very difficult to, to say to people that we need time to be able to work out what, what just happened before the next thing happened. Lucy, how does that feel for you? Yeah, I think um, it's a really important point Kath makes, and it's great at the FT, you know, there have been recent hires to bolster the, exactly the kind of skills um, that she was talking about. You know, we call it um, visual investigations. I think that's what the New York Times calls it. Others in the US call it visual forensics. Um, but I think it is really important. There has been this sense, um, as one of my colleagues, John Byrne Murdoch, pointed out recently, that because there isn't this expertise in news organizations, they, you know, journalists are too reliant on the claims of others about what's gone on or the claims of other people, um, how to read um, certain evidence. So I think it is absolutely right that the major news organisations that have the resources are um, upskilling in this way. So you have independent experts um, on the journalistic side who are able to provide their own independent analysis. Yeah, and I, um, for anyone who doesn't already follow John on, on, and of course Lucy, but on X or Twitter or whatever you call it, I mean, he is really fascinating on this stuff as is well worth you had a really interesting thread on that as you say lucy um okay i think we're going to be coming back to this topic but let's turn our attention now to the latest political events in the uk and the results of yesterday's by-elections Lucy, it's it's always a bit risky to reach for words like unprecedented or seismic or historic, but can you give us some context for, for what you think we should be thinking about these by-election results? Well, you're right. Um, it, you know, there is so much hyperbole uh, when it comes to uh, political commentary, but these really are two pretty seismic uh, wins for Labour. And it's not just the likes of Keir Starmer now saying the party has made history or, um, you know, Pat McFadden, Labour's campaign chief, who has said, look, this is not normal politics. This is a sign that people want change. You know, it's also backed up by pollsters like the elections expert, Sir John Curtis, um, who has also sort of uh, said that this is an historic win. And when you look at the figures, it really is extraordinary. I think the um, 23.9% swing to Labour in Tamworth is the second highest swing to Labour ever. And so, you know, picking up reaction um, on Friday morning, it's just fascinating to me that Labour insiders are now just sort of daring to dream that not only could they win the next election, you know, they could potentially be uh, on the track to the kind of landslide um, that the party saw in 1997. Now, they might be getting slightly ahead of themselves. Of course, um, there's lots of 
caveat factors we should bear in mind. The first is that turnout was low. The Conservatives certainly hoped that many of the people who stayed at home were slightly fed up, disaffected Tories who will nonetheless come back to the party at a general election. Um, There's also the um, perennial warning that by-elections give rise to a chance for voters to give the government of the day of whatever colour a kicking. And of course, the particular circumstances in which these by-elections came about, you know, one of the um, exiting Tory MPs was caught up in groping allegations. The other, Nadine Doris, you know, was a key ally of Boris Johnson and all the sort of turmoil his leadership sort of entailed, uh, I think, sort of reflected on local sentiment about her. There were concerns she hadn't been properly representing local voters for the past 12 months or so. So there are factors that mean, you know, we shouldn't necessarily think this, these huge swings would be repeated at a general election. But it is really good news for Labour and they are duly celebrating today. And Kath, I mean, one of the pieces we wrote after the Labour conference, we argued that Starmer had sort of set out a narrative, but we felt he needed to do more to, to, to deepen the policy offer that he was putting forward to voters. But maybe his conclusion from yesterday will be he doesn't need to do that. A thin policy offer is, is enough. Yeah, I mean, we've talked a lot in recent months about, uh, you know, Labour's uh, current success is based a lot on voter frustration with Conservatives uh, rather than a move towards Labour's vision. And yes, if you can win a general election without uh, having to commit to policies which in a extremely pessimistic, you know, fiscal climate uh, could cost money, then of course, you know, you might not want to have to make promises that will be tricky for you to keep or are going to cost money and so forth. But there's still going to be pressure on Starmer to to keep it going. And, you know, we'll be talking about this shortly, but if the election is still a year away, that's a lot of time for the voting public to start thinking about what a Starmer premiership could look like and start asking those questions about it. And that will be something that the Conservatives will be hoping that that maybe seeing more of Labour, the retail offer, that, that maybe they'll start to change their mind and, and maybe going longer will help them for that. But I mean, for, from Sunak's point of view, it, it's so much worse in terms of the pressure and the position that he um, left himself with after the the conference, because already conservatives are coming out with whatever you know their opinion is about what uh, should ha- you know what policies should be happening now. They're using this to to argue it, so um, that will pull Sunak all over the place in terms of different policy positions, uh, and that's going to increase pressure, not only on them in terms of their election offer, but also in terms of governing for the next year. That's really interesting, Kath. And I mean, just in terms of, of, of what this does to the Conservative approach, I mean, the, the Uxbridge by-election, as we've discussed, was, was shaped around ULES, mm. which in turn shaped the national debate over, over net zero. And Rishi Sunak really sort of leapt on that. And then we had the the cancellation of, of HS2. But what do you think he does in response to these these by-elections? I mean, from what we've seen to, of Sunak thus far, he's likely to try and stay the course. He's already made this decision over the summer about uh, changing up some of his personnel and changing up some of the messaging and you know, talking about long-term decision-making, taking the hard decisions, even if that didn't make him popular. So I suspect, at least in the short term, he's going to try and continue with that. There was a feel in the last few days that um, because it was so tight, particularly in mid-beds, that maybe planning 
consent was an issue there. And I think the Conservatives, if they had managed to hold on, might have been sort of saying, look, actually, Starmer's very strong positioning at the party conference on planning and house building is turning off voters. But it's less easy for them to make that argument now. But I've already seen multiple takes from Conservative MPs reported to journalists, some of which are, are, you know, resignation, some of which, as you say, are talking about whether or not voters stayed at home and others of which are saying we need tax breaks now. So it's just going to increase pressure on the government. I mean, Alex, I had some interesting analysis from, from John Curtis of, of UK and Agenda Europe, who, who was sort of saying that, that Conservatives may be facing a, a pincer movement with former Conservative Leave voters heading off to Labour or alternatively to reform. That's not very easy for the Conservatives to, to negotiate the way through that, is it? No, it's not. And I do think one of the features, you know, it's, it, it is now part of the debate, but certainly the local elections earlier this year, all of these by-elections have shown that tactical voting is you know, operating and operating pretty effectively for uh, the Labour Party and the Liberal Democrats and ag- against the Conservatives. It, as you say, it is hard to know what the Conservatives uh, and Rishi Sunak do about that. I think, I mean, to the points that Kath and Lucy were making, uh, Sunak's main the main thing in his favour and that makes life difficult for him is time. So there will always be the hope that something will will turn up. Um, I'd also, I mean, clearly tactical voting uh, happens to a more extreme level in by-elections. So that's another factor to add to Lucy's list of all the reasons not to over-extrapolate these by-elections. But even more than all of those, I think the thing that would give you caution if you were the Labour Party is less that somehow all of these uh, elections are exceptional um, because they're in line with the national polls. It's more that Labour still have this huge mountain to climb after the 2019 election result. They need a really big swing, even to get a majority of one. Um, they're looking on course for that at the moment if the polls are right, but that can change. So uh, I'm I'm less persuaded that the Labour lead is soft or that the by-elections don't represent what people actually think or anything like that. It's more just keeping in mind that Labour need everything really to go their way to get even a sort of small workable majority, let alone some of the, the kind of 1997 uh, or 2019 style landslides. But, uh, Lucy, just to finish on this, I mean, the tactical voting point is, is always made in relation to by-elections, but it doesn't really work in relation to mid-beds, does it? Because um, with the Lib Dems were very much a factor there. Where do the Lib Dems fit into this picture? Yeah, I think it's a really interesting uh, question. I mean, they make the point that they have doubled their vote share since 2019. And in this seat, they say that stands them in very good stead uh, for gains in the blue wall come the next election. Um, In actual fact, there's only a handful of three-way marginals or, or, you know, target seats where Labour and the Lib Dems will be pitched against each other um, at the next general election. So it's not a, a dynamic that's going to be repeated. Luckily for both parties, um, in fact, they, they tend to be the main, uh, it's pretty clear cut in most places, who is the leading contender to sort of capitalise on the anti-Tory uh, vote. But yeah, I think it is um, a bit of a blow potentially for, for Ed Davey. You know, there had been uh, a lot of briefing and counter-briefing. It actually got pretty nasty between Labour and the Lib Dems in mid-Bedfordshire um, as they sort of uh, fought to sort of be the lead contender to oust uh, the Tories. And I was sort 
sort of struck by some of the colour pieces that featured in the papers this week in the, in the lead up to the poll, where voters were telling journalists and canvassers, look, all I want to do is, is get rid of the Conservatives, but I don't know which, which party is more likely to do that. So I thought that was quite interesting that, um, that Labour edged the Lib Dems in the end. Okay, let's move on from the by-elections to the general election, because everybody is always asking or asking me and asking my colleagues at the IFG when it is going to be held. Could it be May next year or the autumn or maybe even January 2025? So we thought we had better do something to think about all of this. Kath, can you tell the audience what we've been up to? Yes, so we uh, decided to look at potential election dates and think about the factors that might be going on in Rishi Sunak's calculation of when to call an election. And we, we sort of focused in on three main periods. Uh, one is May next year. There's still a lot of talk about whether or not Rishi Sunak would go, you could say, relatively early, but it would still be in the final year of this parliament uh, in May next year. Um, I think that's looking less likely off the back of those results last night. Uh, And he himself has already ruled that out, we should say, but you could never trust that. Um, The other option was autumn next year, which uh, involves a lot of digging into that. So we'll we'll come back to that in a bit more depth. And then the final option is winter next year and the final date by which an election must be held, which is the 28th of January uh, 2025. Got to get my years right. So uh, we, we, we... calculated what that would mean in terms of when you would have to announce an election and dissolve Parliament, the the weeks of uh, the campaign period and so forth, to then set out a few different dates and start digging into what they would look like. And Lucy, I saw your colleague Stephen Bush tweet that after reading our explainer, he was now convinced that it was going to be January 2025. But what do you think? Well, look, uh, you know, no one who effectively decides to cancel Christmas uh, is going to be particularly <laughs> popular with their MPs or uh, the media. All, the, all the media, yeah, <laughs> dare I say. Um, look, you know, I, I've never sort of ruled it out because I think I think something um, Alex alluded to earlier, the sort of the optimism in bias that something will turn up means that, you know, if push comes to shove and the polls are still looking dire, I don't think it's impossible that it could be pushed to the very last minute. And look, if the polls are still dire for the Tories and they essentially know they're heading out of office, that's when you get sort of the Downing Street bunker mentality, thinking about legacy and even sort of as petty considerations as, you know, where will we stand, you know, in in the, in the rankings of longest or shortest serving PMs. Um, I would still say, to my mind, the most obvious timing for the election would be next autumn, next October, next November. But I was also struck that, um, you know, Tory uh, strategists in recent weeks have been really trying to stress that there's absolutely no way at all, absolutely no consideration of the of the election being um, in the spring next year, May, June. Um, they sort of give the reasons that, uh, well, how on earth would we explain to the public why we're going early? And it would look like we were trying to dodge a summer of uh, small boat crossings. And I just sort of detect a, a little bit of the lady protesting too much. Uh, so while I don't think it's likely, I think there's this sort of game going on of Tory strategists very much trying to, as much as possible, keep the element of surprise there if they were to go in uh, in the spring. But that would need for the economic backdrop to massively improve, the polls to crunch uh, until then. So it doesn't feel likely. 
Hannah and Kath know exactly what I'm going to say because I've been banging on about it to all my colleagues. But last month I made the the only bet I've ever laid in my life uh, uh, on a January 2025 election because 12 to 1 were the odds that were on offer. And that actually seemed quite quite good i think there is a uh, there, there there is a chance and uh, like like stephen bush um having read this uh, brilliant explainer which i would uh, commend to everybody um uh, you you do sense that that point we talked about around time really will resonate the the they the, the conservatives foregrounded inflation um uh, as their top priority at their party conference as well as all the other announcements um so that will take time to play through the other economic indicators Waiting lists don't look like they're turning around anytime soon. Small boats and so on. So I think the uh, I, I, th- I still think it's slightly underpriced that January election. The the other thing to say with all of this is you know the May 2024 calculation is really just a political calculation. Has it improved enough? Do you think that somehow it will get worse? Do you want to avoid the summer of small boats or whatever? I still think that you you know if you're staring down the barrel of potential defeat and you've got another potential six months as prime minister, that's going to weigh on uh, Sunak's calculation as well. With autumn next year, there's many other calculations. The first one is, do you have party conferences or not? They are uh, a cash cow for both political parties, but they also suck resources away. So um, you need your MPs, you need your activists to be focusing on the campaign if you are going to go for, say, an October 2024 election. The other consideration, and the Times raised this today, but I've heard others from um, inside Whitehall raise this with me as well, is the uh, US elections, which are also November next year. I mean, the likelihood is that unless we have a May election, these are going to clash. There are going to be risks about foreign interference, disinformation, um, you know, the campaigns for both carry on much you know, longer outside the official campaign period. But another concern is just the the disruption that happens in and around an election. For the US, obviously, if there is a change of administration, you have to appoint a load of new people. Um, that can cause huge chaos. And the concerns are around security and defence. There's a lot going on in the world at the moment, as we've just been discussing. For the UK, the difficulty is that when you're out on campaign, obviously, ministers are distracted. It doesn't mean we don't have government. Uh, If anything happens, ministers still are serving, are able to react to that. Uh, But what you also do is you dissolve parliament. So it's not even that you could recall parliament. There is no parliament. And that is something that more and more people in Whitehall are becoming concerned about, that if something happened during that period, and you've also got the turmoil of a US election happening happening concurrently, that could be a significant security risk and something that um, uh, certainly security officials want Sunak to consider. Well, and I think there are plenty of other security concerns, as we discussed at the at the top of the pod, uh, for them to be thinking about as well. So this is probably another one they don't want on top of it. Lucy, as a journalist, how do you feel about having a, a combined US and UK elections at the same time? Well, I feel um, from a very self-interested point of view, I think the the US elections would sort of overshadow um, what happens on this side of the pond. Um, Look, I think, you know, there is a huge amount of concern um, about the read across from from the US, foreign interference, just the the technologies around deep fakes um, and misinformation and and, and all sorts of, of dirty tricks and the way in which 
the government or the authorities or anyone would be able to kind of keep up with what people are saying on, uh, you know, private Facebook groups and on all sorts of platforms that now proliferate that aren't very mainstream, wouldn't, you know, be household names um, probably to listeners um, of, of the IFG podcast. So I, I, I sort of worry that that will be amplified if they are run at the same time and the UK doesn't have its own sort of place and space and time to sort of have, have its own ballot. Can I raise a tiny, really geeky point? Because it's the IFG podcast. Of course, we like tiny geeky points. <laughs> and it's because it's legislation I, I worked on, and I think it sometimes get, gets overlooked. In 2013, in order to de-risk the administration of the elections, um, the government changed the timetable for general elections from 17 days to 25 days. Um, and I think people often forget that. They talk about long campaigns or short campaigns. It is set out in statute now that you have 25 working days, um, which at times like this becomes really quite politically salient when people are uh, debating dates. So uh, I would um, uh, I'd, I'd urge everyone not not to lose sight of the election timetable uh, in all of this stuff for the, the, the dates and the, uh, the juggling that, that prime ministers have to do, as Kath was saying. Okay, a slight gear shift now into what is deep IFG territory. We saw what was for us some very interesting news this week on civil service reform. Alex, tell us who has uh, been thinking about this reform and what have they been saying? It's uh, Francis Maud. It's that man again, Lord Maud of uh, Horsham. Uh, uh, and, and he was commissioned quite a long time ago now, about a year, 18 months ago, to do a narrowly focused review into civil service and ministerial accountability. We haven't actually had the review published yet, but we have had some quite credible reports of it. And um, uh, Maud himself has not been too shy at various conference fringe events and things about talking about it. So we do have a pretty good idea of what's going to be in it. Um, I said the review was narrowly focused on accountability of civil servants and ministers. Um, Francis Maud has admirably completely busted through his terms of reference and gone very wide to uh, look at all sorts of um, questions about civil service reform. He will make the point um, that uh, the civil service doesn't have a strong enough stewardship function over its own capability um, and capacity, something that we would strongly agree with. Uh, he'll say that there isn't enough external pressure on the civil service to maintain its own uh, capability. Um, lots of good stuff in there about um, uh, about the um, corporate functions of the civil service and how to improve them, get more external talent in and so on, as I understand it. Um, he's also um, made some more uh, politically contentious recommendations about splitting the treasury to give a new prime minister's department, um, uh, having scrapped the cabinet office, um, uh, more responsibility for setting budgets and uh, doing making spending decisions. Also talking about um, splitting the role of the cabinet secretary from the head of the civil service, a really long running debate that has pros and cons that we may uh, go on to talk about. And finally, um, it seems that he'll suggest that there should be more, even more of a role for ministers in making senior appointment decisions for permanent secretaries and other um, senior civil servants, which is the bit I have to say that I'm most uh, sceptical about. I think they already have quite a lot of say over that. And as we've talked about in the past, there are some real risks to civil service impartiality uh, around and those final recommendations. So, Kath, what do you think about these proposals around splitting up the Treasury? 
look, I love a debate about the Treasury uh, in this sense. Uh, I remember looking in some great depth at 1964 when they created a Department for Economic Affairs and uh, how that went wrong. And also when they took out a lot of management functions and created a civil service department and looked into how that went wrong as well. I mean, the reality is in both cases, a lot of it was about political support and about the people that they appointed. Um, If you don't have a prime minister who then backs up a machinery of government change of that scale and supports the new institutions and, you know, make sure that Whitehall is changing the way it's operating, changing the way that the cabinet is operating, then these things are doomed to failure. Um, But on paper, I mean, we've been talking about should you split the treasury for years? Maud is right that plenty of other countries do it in a very different way. I'm sure that the treasury would not want this. I think the usual IFG answer would be that we just need to have a lot of thought about it and make sure that that how you go about doing it is really well thought out and it's not just uh, done as a sort of uh, political fiat where then everyone has to deal with the aftermath of it and you haven't put in the right people to make sure that it is a success. Alex? Uh, yeah, I, I agree with all of that. The, the only point I, I would add, and it is something we're thinking about quite a lot at the moment um, because of this uh, commission on the centre of government that we're working on, you know, two, two reports in uh, February next year, get the plug in, um, is there is a really strong case at the very least for making sure that the Prime Minister has proper economic support so that they can have um, constructive discussions with the Chancellor. The Chancellor has the huge institutional power of the Treasury. It may or may not be right to keep that in the same form that it is um, at the moment, but the Prime Minister is underpowered in that department. So one of the things that I would um, you know, urge the current and any future Prime Minister to think really hard about is their economic team and how you arrange that in a way that doesn't get co-opted by the Treasury after, in a way that some of the um, early Johnson plans for joint special advisor teams and so on does, or creates huge institutional institutional tension with the, with the Treasury, um, like uh, Margaret Thatcher and Alan Walters, her advisor, um, uh, who Nigel Lawson didn't like, but it does give the Prime Minister the ability to have proper discussions about spending reviews and budgets and the day-to-day um, uh, decisions that the Treasury is so uh, influential in making. And Lucy, do you think splitting up the Cabinet Secretary's role seems likely? Uh, it, well, in a word, no, not not this side of an election. Um, I don't think that it's a priority for Sunak. I don't think Simon Case would allow his empire effectively to be halved. I think it's a question if Labour were to win the next election going forward, what, what their view on that would be. I'm sure Sue Gray, Starmer's new chief of staff, will have a view about whether it's better to split it. She might also have a sort of uh, self-interested considerations about whether, you know, that hugely powerful role is split across two people or is sort of, um, you know, contained within within one person. So uh, I, I can see the arguments for doing it. And I think particularly at the moment, given Simon Case has not himself been, you know, a, a permanent secretary of a major department. Of course, he was briefly perm secretary number 10 before becoming cabinet secretary. There is um, a sense at the highest echelons of the civil service that they would like their own standard bearer to be someone who sort of beats the drum and, and makes the case for the civil service, where whereas the cabinet secretary would sort of be responsible for delivery in, in number 10 and, and looking after the prime minister. So I can definitely see the argument for it. But as ever with machinery of government changes, I'm not sure it's um, it, it will be at the forefront of uh, a struggling administration's mind right now.
Okay, let's end by turning our attention north of the border because this week the SNP held its annual conference in Aberdeen. Our colleague Jess Sargent headed there to attend her fourth, yes, her fourth conference of the autumn and she joins us now. Hi, Jess. Hi, Hannah. Four is a lot of conferences. Well done. Can you tell us about the mood at the SNP conference? Yeah, it's been a lot of fun, but I'm looking forward to having my Sundays back. Um, yeah, so I think ultimately members were in good spirits. I think actually that's something I've seen at every conference, you know, despite the state of the party or where they are in the polls. Generally, members getting together um, generally have quite a good time. But I think what you did feel there was a sort of sense of frustration. I think members of the SNP feel that independence is inevitable and they're doing lots of work on what an independent Scotland would look like, including what the constitution would look like. And we did an event on that particular uh, topic. But as much as they might not like to admit that, I think the route to independence is quite contingent on what happens in Westminster and the position of government there. And I think what this creates is this sort of impatience, which I think is starting to make activists almost a bit grumpy, both at uh, kind of Westminster and people outside, but also um, with each other a little bit. And actually, we had the Minister of uh, Independence on one of our panels. And at times, he got a bit of a, a bit of a rough ride. Uh, so I think, you know, there's still some energy in terms of independence, but I think this increasing frustration, of they're not quite sure exactly how they're going to get there. But the big thing that did come out of the conference is this idea of a new plan to get to a referendum. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so there's a bit of ambiguity exactly what the motion that was passed actually meant. So what it said very clearly is that the SNP will run on a platform for independence. And if they win the majority of the seats in Scotland, then they will argue that that constitutes a mandate to begin independence negotiations. But exactly where they go from that is a bit unclear. The motion said that they'd establish this constitutional convention, which would take this forward, and it would be made up of MPs and MSPs. But there's still a bit of ambiguity exactly what that means in terms of process. There were activists at some of our fringe meetings who were saying that this meant that there didn't need to be a referendum anymore, that just a general general election result would uh, constitute a mandate for independence. But there is a part of the motion that also says that the power to hold a referendum should be devolved on a permanent basis, which suggests that a referendum still is on the cards and there might be a second vote. And then there's also a kind of plan C within the motion, which says that uh, if Westminster basically doesn't play ball, then the 2026 Scottish Parliament election would be a de facto referendum. So kind of several paths to independence kind of caught in, in that motion. And I think an almost intentional ambiguity, because there are very few options that the SNP or the Scottish government alone can really pursue in, in terms of trying to uh, achieve independence. And Alex, I thought it was interesting that Nicola Sturgeon had a bit of a hero's welcome at the conference. The, at least at, at the SNP and at the Conservatives' former leaders overshadowing their successors seems to be a bit of a theme. Yes, Nicola Sturgeon, the, the, the Liz Truss or Boris Johnson of the uh, of the SNP. That's not not perhaps something we thought we'd we'd be saying. I mean, I think part of it is that at these conferences, as Jess was saying, everybody kind of gets together and there's a sort of, there's an energy amongst activists that almost sort of needs to go somewhere. They want a bit of rock star. Um, they want a bit of uh, I- I- excitement. And I suspect, Jess will know better, but I suspect 
some of that phenomenon was happening with um, with with Sturgeon, but also she was a you know, for a long time a phenomenally successful leader for um, uh, for them, and before that a uh, uh, you know very clear number two. So you know she she is a rock star in, in SNP circles and whatever her uh, recent um travails and let's see how how those play out um uh, if if you are a loyal smp activist i can see why you want a little bit of that um uh, a sense of the the glory days and jess i mean sturgeon had originally proposed october the 19th as the date for a second referendum Yes, and I mean, lots of people were pointing out with the storms in Scotland yesterday, uh, that might have been quite an interesting event had it had happened. Um, But yes, I think, you know, we've seen several plans put forward by the Scottish government um, to hold a second independence referendum uh, be superseded by events. And as I said, it comes back to this point that actually, ultimately, unless the Scottish government or the SNP is going to pursue some sort of illegal route to a referendum, um, which they have repeatedly said that they don't want to do because they want to be accepted by the international community if they were to become independents. And ultimately, like, there is just... the, the legal fact that it is going to require some cooperation with the UK government. And so actually what might be most uh, decisive in figuring out what happens next might be the results of the next election and the position of the next government rather than necessarily the SNP's strategy. And one one quick point on the sort of how the SNP are doing. I think it can be easy to to lose sight in London, you, there's lots of talk about is it is it that Labour are doing better uh, and therefore some of the wind has gone out of the SNP's sales in terms of their voter base or the well-publicised problems that Nicola Sturgeon and others have, have had around um, you know, legality and, and donations and so on. It, it is also, they have been in government for a very long time. I was talking to someone um, uh, who's close to the SNP yesterday uh, and he ma- he made the point that actually most of this is about I think is it 16 years now uh, in government or longer, uh, and political gravity only lasts so long. So I, I think that sometimes is a you know, slightly neglected factor in in uh, Scottish politics as viewed from London at least. Kath, is Scotland still key to the outcome of the general election? Do you think? Uh, it's hugely important. We were talking earlier on about the difficulty, uh, the swing that is needed for uh, Labour to be able to get a majority government. And obviously, every seat that Labour wins in Scotland reduces the target uh, that Keir Starmer needs nationally to get a majority. But it's not the bulk of where you need to win. Uh, there's a huge amount that then Labour need to do around the rest of the country. And obviously, these two by-elections will be something that Labour are looking closely at in terms of different places that they can win that perhaps they haven't won historically, mid-beds being the example of that. Tamworth used to be a Labour seat. Um, but I mean, this, the significance of, of Scotland historically, has, been, or at least in recent years, has been if Labour get close but don't get a majority in the Conservative attack until about a year ago was that uh, a hung parliament would mean that Labour are in the SNP's pocket and that puts independence back into play as a negotiating tactic. Obviously, if Labour wins stronger in Scotland and the SNP don't do as well, then that's if there is a hung parliament, takes a bit of the pressure off for Starmer on that front. And if Scotland and its constitutional future are your thing, then you are in luck. We've got Anna Sarwell, Labour's leader in Scotland, speaking at the IFG next Tuesday. Do check out our website for details on that one and join us here or online. That's it for today. Thank you to Alex Thomas, Kath Haddon, Jess Sargent, and especially to Lucy Fisher. You can find all our podcasts at iTunes, Spotify, and all major platforms. Please do subscribe and do leave us a review. 
A quick plug too for our new podcast, a joint effort with Paul Johnson of the IFS and Anand Menon of UK and a Changing Europe. It's called The Expert Factor. And yes, it's an expert deep dive into the big issues and questions facing British politics right now. Do check it out. So Parliament has returned. Election fever is gripping ever more strongly. How long will we have to wait? See you next week.